Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Let us hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my, belo- my <coughs> beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless sons of God, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the, uh, the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For this same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord, and that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because that ye heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but, also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore uh, the more carefully, 
that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. In the last chapter, in Philippians 1.27, the apostle exhorts the Philippians to continue to walk or to conduct themselves in a manner commensurate with the gospel of Christ. He desired, his desire for them was that they would stand fast in one spirit and with one mind strive together for the faith of the gospel. In this chapter, then, the apostle exhorts the Philippians with great tenderness and fatherly affection to that same end that they would order themselves in their conversation in a way that promotes unity within the body of Christ and that too commensurate with the gospel in which they have been called. The love and concern that we have seen from Paul throughout his epistles is ready at hand again here. He exhibits a pattern, not only for the ministry, but for all of us, that our chief concern would be for the kingdom of God, as it says in Matthew 6.33, and that we would remember Jerusalem as our chief joy in Psalm 137. For the apostle, his mind was not fixed on his present circumstances, him being in prison at that time, bound in chains, not for his earthly wants, but on the well-being and uh, fruition of the church, fruitfulness of the church. So you can divide this chapter up into two sections. The first section is... uh, verses 1 through 18, and then the second section is 19 through the end of the chapter. So we'll start out with the first section, which we are exhorted to that great exemplar of humility in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing in verse 1 that we want to see is the tenderness and earnestness of the apostle as he uh, calls them to consider their love and bonds of affection with him and amongst themselves. Notice these tender words. If you are to grant me any consolation or relief in Christ, if you are to grant any comfort by the love you have for the ministry of the word, if the Spirit of God has granted any fellowship of unity among you, and if you have any concern or desire for the relieving of the soul of this apostle. For all this, what is it that the apostle asks? Well, he asked that they stand together in a blessed unity, brotherly harmony, and affections one for another, being like-minded, standing together for the same love toward one another. Notice the primacy that the Lord that the apostle puts upon the unity of the church. As we are united to Christ, so we ought to be bound one to another, being all united with Christ. So in verses 3 and 4, the apostle instructs the Philippian church as to that unity, how to promote unity and meekness that is most necessary for that unity he is speaking of. 
Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory. He explains that pride is the greatest and most destructive force against Christian unity, especially in its two manifestations, strife and vainglory. Strife here uh, speaks of selfish ambition, one who is promoting one's opinion and advantage over everyone else. Vain glory is characterized by a self-aggrandizement that is offended at the advancement of one another. These are two twin sins that come out of a heart filled with pride. And he calls them to put these things off and to take up humility. And what is that humility? Well, first, it's characterized by a service one to another. It's yielding up what we would consider our own rights and our own privileges for that of others. It is a seeking not for the promotion of ourselves, but of others. It is a letting others take the lead instead of us insisting upon our own way. These are all what characterize humility. And so, within this context, Paul calls us to lift our eyes and to lift our minds and our hearts to that great exemplar of humility that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it would be fair to note that the doctrines that he is going into here with regards to the incarnation of Christ and a particular emphasis on his humiliation and exaltation are difficult for us. And yet, this is one of the strongest passages that teach us about the Incarnation. But we must notice as well, as a side note, consider that this great doctrinal passage, which you'll find in practically every systematic theology that you have, that you pick up on the Incarnation, this great doctrine is found within the context of our duty. And so it's almost as if the, the apostle sets up this great uh, in, in, you know, systematic statement on the incarnation of Christ in order to press us to that duty. One thing we must remember, brethren, is that doctrines are not just some out there abstract uh, thing that we are only to know. They have implications. They have applications. And we ought to remember that all true doctrine is never opposed to, but promotes our duty. You shall know them by their fruits, as it sells elsewhere. Remember, the incarnation is something we will never likely fully comprehend in this life, nor perhaps even in the life to come. It is a difficult doctrine, and we have limited and finite minds. But it is a doctrine that must be handled carefully and in keeping with the boundaries of Scripture, lest we fall into error. However, insofar as it has been revealed in Scripture, it is given to us so that we might know it, believe it, and as Deuteronomy 29.29 states, that we might be equipped to do all that the Lord has commanded. In knowing it, as the Apostle makes use of it here, we must conform ourselves to that example of the Lord Jesus Christ as he sets before us what true humility looks like. Okay, so let us then look to the example that's set before us. First thing that we'll note 
is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is God. He is, as our catechism explains, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. He is, as it were, in the form or morphe of God, and that is that he's, it, it, he has all that pertains to the nature and substance of the Godhead. All that makes God divine, he has in and of himself. As God, then, he is due all divine rights and prerogatives. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It was his right to stand with his Father in glory for all eternity, never to have come to earth. There was nothing that was to be added to him um, that would make him in a more blessed state than that. He was in a state of what we might term as perfect complacency in and of himself, having no wants, no unfulfilled needs. There was no advantage to him as God to come down and save sinners. So, if he did, it was not for himself, is the point. For the sake of his elect, he humbled himself. And notice the progression of humiliation. He made himself of no reputation. This is not, as some would say, that the son put off some aspect of his deity, that he uh, somehow divested himself of some divine attribute. For this would mean that he, God, became not God, which is the road to heresy, if not heresy itself. But instead it means it is that he divested himself of his manifest glory. That is, as translators have shown here, he became of no reputation. As he walked on earth, there was nothing comely about him. There was nothing in his outward form that would tell you, this is God. Now, to the eyes of faith, we know that the apostles did behold his glory. But as he walked through the streets, there was nothing noteworthy about him. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. For the accomplishment of our redemption, the Son of God took to himself man's nature, a true body, and a reasonable soul. Note that he did not make himself in the human nature in the height of its glory. He wasn't a king or a prince or an emperor or anything along those lines that men would account glory to. Instead, he came in the form of a servant. As it says in Larger Catechism 47, that he was made of a woman of low estate to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. Now, but it proceeds on. Then he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He submitted himself to the will of his father so that he, uh, that he endured death and not just any death, but the painful, shameful, and accursed death of the cross, being in torment both body and soul under the full weight of God's wrath for his elect. The humiliation was great. This is God the Son we're talking about here. 
But as the apostle moves to verses 9 through 11, we note that the example of humility is not only set before us as in a standard in Christ, that this, is, this too, we ought to have the same mind in us, but he also gives us great encouragement by helping us to recognize the great blessing that God attaches to humiliation, to being humble in this world. The world will tell you that if you want to um, be exalted, you must grab it. You must take hold of it. The only way to advance yourself is by pride and self-aggrandizement, promoting yourselves among yourselves. However, the scriptures manifest that pride is not the way to glory. On the contrary, it is the way to abasement and destruction. And so the scriptures throughout declare that in humbling ourselves before the Lord and one another, it is the Lord who will lift us up. It is the Lord who will exalt us in due time. Not so that we might uh, go after humility in a mercenary way, but as an encouragement to us that in our abasement we will find glory at the end. And so this same pattern is set forward in Jesus Christ in his person uh, that as he was exalted to the highest elevation, so that every knee should bow, and all of things in heaven and on things of earth and of things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we also recognize here that there is an exaltation of Christ that differs from any exaltation we can expect. The glorification of the saints doesn't mean that this pattern follows exactly. This statement here about Jesus, that to him every knee shall bow, is an exaltation of Christ in full recognition of his divine prerogatives. As we see in Isaiah 4, um, 45, 23 through 25. However, there is an exaltation for saints in the glorification of the saints when we are rid of every uh, vestige of that remaining corruption that still remains in us and we are brought into God's presence to commune and fellowship and worship him for all eternity. And so, what is the path to exaltation? It is humility. So, it, moving on to the second section then, in verses 12 uh, through 18, I'm sorry, this is a continuation of that section. He expounds humility's true end. Humility finds its end in a humble submission to God in all things, whether in public or in private view. What is the source of our humility? Um, we recognize that we all are sinners, and miserable and devoid of all good in ourselves. We must be wholly reliant upon the grace of the Lord to work in us both to will and to do after his good pleasure. God provides both the inclination to obedience and the power to effect it in our lives. That is what Paul is saying there. However, it is not as if we just kind of fall back on our lees and say, okay, well, God is going to do whatever he is going to do. No, he also exhorts them to the responsibility that we have as uh, saints to work out our own uh, salvation with fear and trembling. Paul ties together our utter dependence on God's grace and our responsibility together. Not that the means themselves are effectual in themselves, but we rely upon the grace of God to make those means effectual. But there is no grace offered without the use of means. 
We see then in this passage that we must be diligent in all that the Lord has put into our hands. In the private and public exercises of religion, and while at the same time not trusting in those means, but trusting in God who makes those means effectual. And lastly, we are to hold fast the word of life, being instructed, um, excuse me, then Paul gives some exhortations as to the fruits of this humility as we move on towards the end of that section. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That is, by being joyful in our humble obedience to the commandments of God, we are to be blameless and harmless, giving no occasion for others to complain of us. We are to be sons of God without rebuke, living blameless lives, conforming to our adoption as the sons of God, as the children of God. We ought to be different from that crooked and perverse generation with whom we live among And we must take heed not to follow after the ways of darkness, but stand as lights of the world. And lastly, there is um, an occasion for perhaps a slight modification to the King James translation, uh, wherein um, verse 16, the, the idea is not holding forth the word of life, but holding fast the word of life, taking it to you and holding on to it being instructed of the word of God that we would take hold of everything that God has told us and live our lives in conformity with it. These are the fruits of humility that we have here. In verse 16, Paul returns to where he began the chapter. He shows again where his consolation and rejoicing can be found. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. For Paul... His glory, his crown as a minister is found when he sees the fruits of faith and obedience and unity to the glory of God abound in those places where he spreads the gospel. Okay, so moving on then to the second section. Now we're moving forward. 19 through 30. We see the same principle of humility um, exemplified by the Apostle Paul as he demonstrates his preferment for the benefit of the Philippian church even if it means deprivation of life or comfort for himself. As an apostle, as the apostle sits in prison, bound with chains, being in hazard even of his own life, he accounted the sacrifice of himself in service of their faith and uh, a joy and rejoicing. Here, Paul aligns his heart with that of his blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as exemplified in the last section, by saying that he is willing even to sacrifice his own life to serve the honor of Christ in this world and the faith of God's elect. So then, being unwilling to cling to his life for the sake of this service, all lesser deprivations seem trivial, don't they? His desire to send Timothy is a deprivation to himself. We must recognize that. By sending Timothy, his, his, fellow, um, uh, his fellow minister, while he is imprisoned, uh, he is sending one who would provide for his care and comfort in that prison. And yet, because Timothy is like-minded, having that same care and affection uh, that the Apostle Paul has, he's more desirous to send Timothy instead of anyone else to the Philippian church because he knows that Timothy will communicate the affections that his ministry has for them. 
He's also desirous to send back Epaphroditus, who came to minister to Paul in his lack, so that Epaphroditus might continue to minister to them. Now, here comes Epaphroditus. We'll talk about his sickness in a moment. Bringing the gifts that the Philippian church had sent. He gets well again. And what does Paul do? Go back and minister. I want them to be taken care of. Now, while we don't know the precise details of Epaphroditus' sickness, we must also recognize that he too sets before us an example of humility. He presses onward in his journey. There was something related to his journey that perhaps um, got him sick, maybe uh, a pressing on too quickly, a negligence of his bone bodily care. Perhaps he didn't eat as much or or uh, strained himself in that journey. But there seems to be every indication uh, of that type of pressing forward as the reason why he was sick, because Paul will say in verse 28 that I sent him back to you more carefully. Take care of yourself, Epaphroditus, so that you might minister unto the saints. So throughout this passage, we are pressed to a greater humility and preferment of the needs of one another. As we have seen examples first in that great exemplar, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then secondarily in the Apostle Paul, in Timothy, and in Epaphroditus. Let us be encouraged then to greater humility, preferring one another even in this place, so that we might be bound together in unity. Thus ends the reading of Philippians chapter 2.